Hey, if you're here for the very first time, we welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's blessed that you're here to join us this morning as we continue in the book of Revelation here in chapter 11. But we want to read a scripture here that we started to start doing. So please stand. We're going to read the scripture together. The scripture comes out of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. And as we opened our mouths and let those words come, may they be truly from our heart of understanding. May we truly believe who you are, Jesus Christ. Not about who you are, not of some kind of a religious form of who you are, but truly know you personally as our Savior. I pray, Lord, as you minister to our hearts through and by your word this morning, that Holy Spirit, would, you would move in a mighty way to touch each and every one of our hearts, transform our minds by the reading of your word. Have your way with us, Lord. Our ears are wide open. Our hearts have been softened as we worshiped you in song. Now we want to receive of the spiritual food that you have for us to nourish our spirit. I pray each and every person here, Lord, has been born again. If not, Lord, today's the day of their salvation. I pray today you will just knock at the door of their heart and know how, how much you love them and desire to have a relationship with them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We have journeyed through a time period of a seven-year tribulation. We have hit the first three and a half years of tribulation so far in the scripture. Here in Revelation chapter 11, we pick back up in verse 15 through 19. We'll finish this chapter, Lord willing. We have seen so far, if you've been following along with us, we have seen so far the three and a half years of the things that were taking place in the first half of the tribulation. We saw the seven sealed judgments. These judgments are the beginning of God's wrath on the earth after the rapture of the church. Those who have rejected Jesus, rejected the things of God, 
rebellious in heart, stiff-necked in thinking they understand everything and they know their own way. But what we find here in the, one of the first things is that seven sealed judgments we also know, and we have not gone into the depths of that, we will. And that is, we also have an understanding because Daniel, the book of Daniel, is key to unlock the book of Revelation. The rise of the Antichrist and the ten-nation confederacy we will study here in the future. The beginning of the tribulation will be marked by the signing of a covenant between Israel and the Antichrist. We see that in Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. We also will see the Antichrist will be head of this ten-nation confederacy. We see in Daniel chapter 2, yes. But also when we get to Revelation chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 17, we will go much more in depth about that. We've also seen the two witnesses. Elijah, pretty clear amongst most people of the study of the scriptures, believe Elijah being one of the two witnesses that will be out there in front of Jerusalem witnessing the gospel to the fallen world, especially to the nation of Israel. We see that confirmation in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Now for the other witness, I lean toward Moses. We've talked about that last week. If you didn't hear that very long sermon last week, then go back and listen to that. Some of you might think it's going to be Enoch. It's okay. You decide on where you settle with either one of those other two. But when you get it right with Moses, then you know you're on track. But these are special witnesses. Special witnesses to Jerusalem and to Israel with the gospel. They will be killed right there and all of the world will see these two being killed by the Antichrist. We will see the rising from the dead of these two three and a half days after. They were going to leave them right on the streets to be a display of don't ever come and bring this gospel or things about God again to us. It's, that's what's the, the, the proclamation or the, the declaration they're making by leaving the body. Because Jews and Muslims do not, as soon as you die, you are buried. You're not laid out there. You're not laid out in a coffin for days waiting for people to come and do viewing. But we will see that the Antichrist will be heading of this ten nation. Yes, these two witnesses will be reaching the, those who will, at the last minute, the, before the Great Tribulation, which is the second half of the, of the seven-year period. But we are going to see God's grace in, in trying to reach those who will hear the truth. We also saw the revival of the 144,000 Jewish male evangelists going out there. And the greatest revival will take place during this seven-year period, or especially the first three and a half years. What are they doing out there? They're preaching the gospel of who Jesus Christ is. There is no other message to be saved. A church will not save you. A religion will not save you. Some... Religious person cannot save you. Your grandma cannot save you. Your grandfather cannot, as much as you would, we would like in, in that position to save, be able to help you. We can't save you. Your parents can't save you. Only Jesus Christ in a personal relationship with him can save you. 
And there is no other way but by faith in him and him alone of what he's done for you. What is it that he's done for you? What has he done for me? He showed his love by dying for me. Paying the penalty for my sins so that I could be set free and have eternal life. There is no greater gift than this gift of salvation that Jesus hands to you. So when we think about Christmas, think about the greatest gift you've ever decided to receive. Because he offers that gift to everyone. Not everyone will receive that gift. Why? Because you've chosen, and I hope no one here has chosen to reject that gift of salvation. I hope you have received it, embraced it, and actually use that gift. Do you know you can get a gift? And you can go, oh, that's so sweet. That's very, oh, that's very nice. I love it. Oh, it's everything I've always wanted. And then you will turn around and go, why did they think I would want something like this? And you shelved it in your, in your, in your closet. You're waiting for the next white elephant gifting so you can repackage it and give it to someone else. People do the same thing with Christianity. They hear the gospel of who Jesus Christ has done for them personally to pay for the penalty of their sins, to pay their debt. Oh, they're so great. It's such an experience. Oh, it's so emotional. And then you walk away and you leave it like you never even received it. You forgot about it. Until years later, you open up the depths of the closet because you're back in the darkness of that closet of yours. And you realize you've always had a gift, but you've just wasted. You've just hid it. Oh, and may it not be us, especially in this season. May our light not be hidden under a basket. The gospel that shines through our lives, it should penetrate in our families. Our children need to see your faith in Christ for them to understand this. And your grandchildren, and it goes on, and your neighbors, everyone needs to see the love of Christ bearing through your life. Let it shine. We've also seen the six trumpet judgments, these you know, judgments focus on the nature and, and, and including two of the three woe judgments. It destroyed much of the lands and the waters. We will also see in chapter 17 of Revelation the false church. Not only the Antichrist, the political leader will come on the scene, but there'll be a false prophet who will help this man to bring people along from a religious ride. You can trust him. Yes, I know he's a political guy, but he's here to help us. And we're 100% we're behind him as a church and blah, blah, blah. All of this is going to be part of this period of time of the three and a half years. But even the Antichrist will turn even on the church, the false apostate church of that time. Because that apostate church will have great power, influence during the first half of the tribulation. This false prophet with the, will aid the Antichrist in his deception to the world. And then we also saw the little scroll at the midpoint, bringing us going into the second half of the tribulation. And this is biblical prophecy that we see considering, that is considered good, sweet to many to, to taste. But the message of judgment is very hard to swallow. It'd be very, it's going to be very bitter, and we saw that. 
And one other point before we start here, and that is to keep in mind that this seventh last trumpet here in Revelation chapter 11 is not the same last trumpet trumpet that you read about in 1 Corinthians 15.52. I encourage you, you do a study on those two trumpets and do the characteristics side by side. You will see those are two different last trumpets. Now we have been waiting since Revelation chapter 8 verse 13 to see the third woe. Here we see the beginning of that third woe. Noticed here in Revelation chapter 11 verse 15, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of, our, of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This right here, the third woe, bringing us now, the seventh trumpet opens up to the last seven bowls of judgment, the wrath, the harshest of wrath on the last three and a half years of the seven year tribulation is now coming here. The end has come. The long conflict is over. We see now the Lord this loud voices, that means, as we will see, all of those in heaven, you and I, crying out in heaven. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And that he shall reign forever and ever. See, in Revelation eleven fourteen we saw that the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. In Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, we saw the seventh seal brought forth complete silence of 30 minutes when that seal was open. Complete silence for 30 minutes in all of heaven. Here, the seventh trumpet initiates not a 30 minutes absolute quietness, but we see it initiates an absolute roar of loud voices of joy and worship at the inevitable resolution. The absolute conclusion of finally the Christ is coming back to rule and reign on this earth. The seventh trumpet initiates the joy and the worship in the hearts of the people in you and I in there in heaven. But the seventh trumpet is announcing the last set of judgments. Which we will see in Revelation chapter 15. So here in chapter 11, we see a preview of things to come. We will see much more of the details of what will happen in these seven last judgments. So how do you conflict or how do you settle with these loud voices of just joy and worship and, and heaven, knowing that the last seven judgments are just going to come of God's wrath, going to come pouring down on this earth? Well... It's because those in heaven have been waiting. You and I, while we have been raptured and we're sitting in heaven, we have been waiting for the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of, 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 his, of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is why there's joy, because finally, this chaos that we've been living in, 
This darkness that is, seems to be ruling and getting darker and darker will come to an end. And Christ will reign. In the grammar here, the ancient Greek grammar for here, have become, is the verb tense. To have become indicates an absolute certainty about Christ's coming and reigning, even before the fact that it actually is accomplished yet. Because it hasn't accomplished yet. So how can there be such joy when the king is not even reigning completely yet? Well, the best example in my mind is we're going into an election year, are we not? You know what happens at the election night. Votes are coming in and all excitement's going here and you're looking at highs and lows and oh, we got more and we're ahead, behind. And at the very end, they, whoever had the most wins of all the different states and et cetera, et cetera, the people in the headquarters of that party is excited. They're full of joy. But are they reigning? Are they in power yet? Are they been sworn in to the oath and to that position? No, not yet. That doesn't take place until January. But the joy is already happening in November. You have to wait a few months before actually coming into the reigning position and to swear in it. That's kind of the moment here is yes. It's happening. It's time. We're ready. We're go. This is incredible. This is going to be great. Christ is going to reign. But there's seven more judgments, seven more bowls of wrath has to be poured out as Jesus comes back in his second coming, and we will be with him. His kingdom will be replaced or replace the kingdom of this world and he will be Lord over all. If you uh, see a slide, I'll have the guys put a slide up here of Daniel chapter 2. These are the kingdoms that you go back and you read Daniel chapter 2, you'll see the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He had a dream. His spirit was so troubled in his sleep he could not sleep. He slept, left him. And he turned to his, his, his um, uh, magicians and, 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 and all of his leaders and his, you know, all these supposed guys that know everything. And, and it was interesting because any other time he would call them in, he'd say, okay, I had a dream or I had this situation. He would explain it to him and say, okay, give me the interpretation. And these guys just played the game. Smart enough, wise enough to put things together and kind of come up with a nice story. And usually the leaders, okay, agree. Not this time. This time he comes in, he says, tell me the interpretation of my dream. And they said, well, king, tell us the dream. He says, I'm not telling you a thing. You tell me what the dream is and what the interpretation is. And if you can't tell me my dream and tell me the interpretation, you're a dead man. Guess what? These fakers couldn't tell the dream, let alone the interpretation. But God, the word got out, and a man named Daniel comes to him and says, Give me some time. Let me seek my God and find out if he will let us know what that dream is, the interpretation. 
And he says in chapter 2, verse 19, that the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Then we see and we slide down to verse 44 and it says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. It was the prophecy of where we are heading in the near future for us. It started with the head of gold, the kingdom of Babylon. They were overthrown by what represents the chest and the arms of silver, which was the kingdoms of the Medes and the Persians. This is historical. You can read all of this. God prophesied what will take place prior to these things happening. We see the belly and the thighs of bronze, which is the kingdom of ancient Greece. We see the legs of iron, the king, kingdom of the ancient Rome. Then the feet of iron and clay, it's a mixture on these feet, which is the kingdom of restored Rome. That is to happen. The ten nation confederacy, the ten toes, the feet representing this, these ten nations will come under the control of the head of the Antichrist. That will happen during the seven year tribulation. But then God is going to crush with the rock. The kingdom of God is going to come and destroy that kingdom and he will take over. That is what it says here in verse 15. The kingdoms of this world, those ten toes, those ten confederates, have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. That's an amen, is it not? So when people question what God's going to do, just look at history. Look at the prophecy, look what the scripture says, scripture says, and look at the thing. When God said these things are going to happen, they will happen. It's not a question mark. That's why we can have joy right now that it hasn't happened yet. But we can have joy because we know it will happen. Satan will no longer rule the, the nations. Jesus Christ is going to rule the nation. It's a guarantee. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his, his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and just from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is truth. This is what we had looked forward to. The promises of God here. The kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of God is synonymous with the kingdom of heaven. So when you're studying the scripture, if you see the kingdom of heaven, it's the same thing as the kingdom of God here. There are three aspects or facets of the kingdom of God. And our understanding as we study the various facets in the scriptures here. Let me give them to you quickly here. 
versus the kingdom of God is the rule of an eternal sovereign, from an eternal perspective, very broad eternal perspective. It is the sovereign God over all the universe. When you hear or read the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it is referring to God's sovereign control of the universe. Several passages of scripture show that God is the undeniable king of all creation. We sing that in our worship time. Do you believe he is the king and king of kings? That he rules who we follow, who we listen to. In Psalm 103:19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. In Daniel 4.3, when we talk about King Nebuchadnezzar declared, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. This is what we're talking about. Eternal perspective. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 9. And the Lord, sa- the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. The second aspect or facet of the kingdom of God is the spiritual rule over the hearts and the lives of those who willingly submit to God's authority. Those who defy God's authority and refuse to submit their lives to Him are not part of the kingdom of God. You've heard me say it many times, just because you know who Jesus is doesn't mean you're saved. doesn't mean you're born again. You might know about Him. Satan knows about him. You know of him. But the question is, do you know personally, do you know him? Because those who are just playing the vignette or the, have a veneer of Christianity, of, that you have a relationship with Christ, doesn't save you. You must be born again. You must be regenerated by the Spirit. And you remember that day when you're born again. There's nothing like any other day you'll ever remember. So important that you understand this truth because the kingdom of God it rules and reigns within a person's life who is born again. Those who acknowledge the lordship of Christ and gladly surrender to God's rule in their hearts are part of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is spiritual. It's not only eternal, but it's also spiritual. Jesus said in his kingdom, was was not of this world, John 18, 36. It's not of this world. He preached that repentance is necessary to be part of the kingdom of God, Matthew 4, 17. That the kingdom of God can be equated with the sphere of salvation is evidence. We see that in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Where Jesus says that the kingdom of God must be entered into by being born again. You can't live your life however you want to live it, even when it goes contrary to the word of God and say, Oh, I'm born again. I'm gonna, I have the guarantee of salvation going to heaven. 
Go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. It's a stark warning. You can't just live your life however you want to live in darkness and still think you have the kingdom of God of salvation in your life. Don't be fooled by the enemy. And then the third facet of the kingdom of God is that we see in Scripture is the literal rule of Christ on the earth during the millennium. That is what it's referring to in our scripture today. Daniel said that the kingdom of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And many other prophets predicted the same thing beyond Daniel. Go back to Obadiah, your favorite book, the one you read all the time. Chapter 1, verse 21. Or maybe your next favorite book is Habakkuk. Go back there in 2.14. Or Micah 4.2. Or Zechariah 14.9. Ponder on those. Meditate on these scriptures, my brothers and sisters. Verse 16, who was, who was creating all these loud noises in heaven? We see in verse 16, and the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God. The 24, 24 elders represents all of believers in heaven. That's you and I. And it's, it's this symbolization of the saints in heaven with loud voices. We're just cheering and joy because now, after three and a half years, we're now coming to the end of seven years, that last three and a half years. Yes, the wrath is coming down, but soon Jesus is going to rule and reign. But they fell on their faces in worship and humility, giving thanks to God because he is the everlasting Jehovah. Because he has taken to himself his great power to reign. Look here in verse 17. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty. The one. The one. Back in Zechariah 14.9. Remember the one? His name one. The Lord is one. The one who is and who was and who is to come. Why? Because you have taken your great power and reigned. God is in control, my brothers and sisters. He's in control. Notice these 24 elders. They're giving thanks to our, own, our, 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 our Lord God Almighty. He understand, we understand where the power is. We understand these things. And they're thankful. Their thanksgiving isn't to thank God that he has already done this. But they're giving thanksgiving because the hour has come for the time to take place. Because they know, we know by the scripture, the motion has been set in, everything has been set in motion. It's just a matter of time. This will come to completion that they're worshiping and giving him thanks already for. Because when God says he's going to do something, it will happen. 
When he says, I have the power and the reins and I'm going to rule and reign over those nations, it's going to happen. Let me ask you a question. God wants to rule and reign over your life. Will you let it happen? Will you let God be in control of your life? You've already messed it up enough. Let him come in and bring order to the chaos that's going on in your mind today. What's going on in your life physically today, spiritually, mentally. God can come in and bring order to the chaos. Trust him. He's in control. Freely come. He says, come. Come to me, all who are weary, heavy laden, burdened, stressed out, anxiety filled, depressed, oppressed. Fill in the word for you, whatever it is. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. What greater offer can we have than the God of the universe that says, come to me and I can give you rest. You've tried everything else and it's not worked. Come to me. Give thanks to him. He's our, our Lord God Almighty. He's the one who is and who was and who is to come. Why? Because he's got great power and he is going to rule and reign because he's God. Now comes the fitting time, the perfect time that God has ordained in, from before the time. A time of judgment, a time of reward, and a time of destruction. The heavenly court of elders is responding to this truth that they know and see. We are all going to respond to this truth. And they did this by humbling themselves and falling on their faces and worshiping God. Acknowledging that he had begun to reign there in verse 17. Like I said, the verb erost, it's a tense, a verb tense, speaking of the certainty of this future event. Even though it hasn't already happened. It's, almost, it's like it already has happened. It's already passed, but not yet. What will happen in verse 18? The nations are going to respond to the fact that God is going to come. Jesus is going to come and rule and reign. Do you think the nations are going to say, yes, finally. Oh, this is, we don't want any more judgments. We want you. We, we finally surrender. No. <laughs> it's not what's going to happen. The nations were angry, verse 18, and your wrath has come. Why did the nations get angry? Because Jesus is coming to reign and they know it. And the fact that his wrath is coming down upon them on the stiff-necked, rebellious nations. And the time, notice that, underline the time of the dead that they should be judged. Because those who are in 
dead in their trespasses will be judged by God. And that you should reward your servants and the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, are going to be rewarded. You and I are going to be rewarded for our faith in Jesus Christ. Our faith that then is displayed in what we do for him or how we respond to that love for him. And the fact that we're faithful, we're going to be rewarded to the prophets being the prophets be sharing the truth of God. And, and, and the saints who are faithfully sharing the truth of God. Those you and I who fear his name, regardless you're small or, you're, or, or great, we're going to be rewarded by God and should destroy those who destroy the earth. This verse 18 covers the entire millennium. This person or this place, this, this moment is a period of judgment, but this is during this 18th verse here really speaks of that millennial age. Where the nations will be angry and will try to go against God. And when Jesus comes and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, these nations are going to turn on him angry. And, and when we get to study that, all he has to do is speak and wipes them out. The power of God's word can wipe out any darkness. Let me say that again if you missed it. If there's any darkness that's in your life, go to the Word of God. The Word of God is powerful to push out the darkness. The nations are angry with God. And how does he respond? He responds with the, la the wrath and will destroy all those who are destroying the earth and in themselves destroyed. The nations are like a beehive. Someone has messed with the beehive. Bees don't like it when you mess with their home. Or the people who love darkness. Here comes Jesus who is light. Darkness does not like light gets quite angry for some of you flipping the light on in the morning when you're trying to you don't want to wake up and you're in the darkness and someone flips the light on you usually are not happy see they are angry because God comes to rule they now know they're no longer going to be in control they cannot rule and reign on this earth anymore in this wicked way that they are the world wants anything but to be reigned by God. It is happening today. Anytime you are just any talk about God being in control and reigning is repelled by this world today. And it's getting more and more. Yes, the, the time came for the dead to be judged and for the rewards to be distributed to the, the servants. Rewards will be given to those who have been faithful and judgment will come upon those who are destroying this earth because of their wicked ways. And that will all be corrected. 
And lastly, verse 19. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings and noises and thunders and earthquake and great hail. Now carefully read that verse a few times. Because the ark of his covenant, the temple of God in heaven, we've already talked about that. It was open. We see, John is saying, I see the temple of God. I see it. It's open. It's clear to me in heaven. He says, then the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. The ark refers to God's throne, the place where the uh, that were previously mentioned that resolution came from. All that activity we saw in the earlier parts of the chapters. But it is called the ark of his covenant because in the Old Testament... This is where the earthly representation of God's throne was, is in the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. But it speaks of God's faithfulness for this people coming from Egypt into the Promised Land. It now speaks of the Ark of God's presence, the presence of God and His faithfulness in God come to fruition of His plan, and that is to Purchase back. He purchased back. He will now claim his purchase of this world. Remember, you've got to go back to Genesis. God created the heavens and the earth. He gave it to man called Adam and Eve. They chose to walk away from the truth of God and gave it and turned it over to Satan. Because of their sin. Jesus then came on the scene to die for and purchase on the cross the property of this this universe, this earth, and all the content of it. That includes you and me. He purchased it back over 2,000 years ago with his life. We now see, which is only a thousand years to one day, one day to a thousand. It's not time at all. We think it's been a long time. For God, it's just a moment, a couple of days here. He's coming back to actually get what he's already purchased. The kingdoms of this world. He's faithful. The Ark of the Covenant is the symbol of God's faithfulness and grace on his people. And he's faithful because remember, he's a God of, of love, but he's also a God of justice. He's a just God. He has to deal with the wickedness that rebels against and pushes God away. And what else is happening here? Some people will see at the end of verse 19, and there were lightnings and noises and thunders and earthquake and great hail. And you think this is the wrath coming down. Yes, you can see it that way. Yes, I, I, I can understand where you're coming from that. But I also see it from a perspective that this was taking place in the context of verse 19 in heaven. He says, the temple of God was opened in heaven. And, conjunction, the Ark of His Covenant, His presence, His faithfulness his was seen in His temple. And connection, same thing, same place. There were lightnings and noises and thunders and earthquakes and great hail. So I see like Exodus 19, verses 16 through 19, 
where God came down in His presence on Mount Sinai? What took place in His presence on that place, on that mount? Great lightnings and noises and thunders and earthquake. The great and awesome phenomena of the opening of the temple, the revelation of the ark, the presence of the Lord, brings the greatest fireworks you will ever see. So we see here at the end of chapter 11, the coming kingdom of God. I hope you're excited because what we're dealing with right now in this craziness of this world is coming to an end. Amen? It's an amen, is it not? So be it. Are you ready and prepared? Are you? Because if you're not born again and you're not a mind focused on the Lord, you're going to go squirrely on me. I don't need you to go squirrely on me. Father, we thank you and praise you. And as we come to your table for communion, we pray, Lord, that you would just minister to our hearts as we worship you. We pray, Lord, as during our time of worship, we're just confessing all things to you. Things that are, we know are dark, it's not good, it's wrong. They're evilness. Things that are in our lives, that things that we're not proud of, we certainly know it's going, it doesn't please you and how we live and how we think and how we speak. Lord, we want to confess those to you. We come to your table we're knowing that as a believer, a being born again believer, we know that you've purchased all of that sin and you've wiped us as white as snow. You've, you've dealt with those issues in our lives. But Lord, we, we, we kind of go back to those things like a dog to its vomit. We don't want to do that, Lord, but we seem so helpless. We need you, Lord Jesus, your spirit of the God. We need you to empower us to, to be able to walk away from anything that is dark, anything that is not pleasing to you.